purpose is transforming the world of work and business. Those leading the way are values-based and people-focused leaders who see business as a force for good. Host Kevin Monroe explores how tapping into the power of purpose infuses your business with meaning and touches the lives of your employees while positively impacting the communities you serve. With the Higher Purpose Podcast, here's Kevin Monroe. Welcome to episode 109 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. By now you know me, I'm your host, Kevin Monroe. And I want to thank you for opening the door for us to share this time together today. Whether you're a first-time listener or part of the family, I'm grateful that we have this opportunity to connect and converse today. Now, I got to tell you, I almost feel compelled to say, warning, the conversation you're about to hear may challenge many things, if not everything you have known or thought you knew about leadership. And that might just be the best thing that could happen for your organization, your office, and even you as a leader. And it certainly might be the best thing to happen for those you lead or those who are longing for you to become the leader they've been waiting for. We're just about to sit down and chat with Jonathan Raymond. And I believe, I hope you're really going to enjoy it. Well, Jonathan Raymond, I want to welcome you to the Higher Purpose Podcast. What a delight to have you join us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Sure. And where are you joining from? I am in Encinitas, California, which is what we call North County, San Diego. Oh, so you're in the beautiful part of the world. It is lovely. We've lived here for about a year. So we're relative newbies to San Diego and North County, but we're loving it here. Hmm. Hmm. Well, Jonathan, around here, we always ground our conversations in the good soil of gratitude. So I'd love to start there. What is something right now in this moment that you're grateful for? Right now, I'm grateful for the time that I get to spend. We have a two and a half year old and I've been in a moment. Historically, I've done a lot of travel for work, but right now I'm not doing as much travel, which is very nice. My team is doing a lot of travel, but that leaves me with a lot of time at home to spend with our very precocious two and a half year old. And I just, you know, I just sit with her sometimes, well, if I can catch up with her and just observe the wonder and the awe with which she soaks in the world and wants to do everything and be everything and see everything. And it's just such a joy to do it. I don't know, you may have had this experience. It's almost impossible to let it all in when you sit with a child like that. So that's been many moments for me recently and, and hopefully many more. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Mm. Well, Jonathan, you know, this is the Higher Purpose Podcast. As I was preparing for this and thinking, I'm so excited to have this conversation. Jonathan has written a book, Good Authority. You want to tell us about the subtitle? I don't want to take that from The subtitle, which is How to Become the Leader Your Team is Waiting For. We spend a lot of time, anyone who's ever written a book knows that you can spend as much time on the subtitle as you do on the title. And I think it was both a way to communicate obviously what the book is about, but also to really capture my own story and my own journey of feeling like I had a lot of ideas, a lot of things that I had learned or heard or maybe even seen out there in the world about how leaders are supposed to be. And what I realized in my own experience was that it was something very different. Mm. And my team was waiting for something different. They were waiting for a different version of me to show up to the moments of leadership. And so that's what the book became about, is about, and that's where we got the subtitle. 
Awesome. Well, I am looking forward to unpacking exactly that, your story, your journey that led to the book. But I want to start with, I think I've got three questions. And who knows, this could be the whole conversation, Jonathan. But the first question, and I see this in the book, and I saw it on your website. So what is the deepest purpose of a business? For us and for me, the deepest purpose of a business is to change the lives of the people who work there. And I've spent a lot of time with CEOs in the last 10 years, in particular in the last three years. And it's something that CEOs don't often talk about, but often feel and are connected with when you get them in an off moment and you get them in a down moment where the moments that matter most to them are not only about market share or you know successful exit. And those are all really nice things, growth in the market reputation. It's what they were able to do for the people who work in the organization. Yeah. And the way that they were able to change lives locally, meaning locally inside the organization, whether it's a, an organization of 10 people or 20,000. And we were very careful in this book not to say it's the only purpose of a business. And it might not even be the primary purpose of a business. But for us, it's the deepest purpose, and that's to fulfill what we would consider to be the agreement of what is the future of work, what do employees want? We could spend a lot of time talking about that. What do employees want today that they either didn't want or didn't know how to articulate five years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago? That's what it's about for us, and that's where we ground all of our work. It's where the place the book comes from, and it's what all of our programs are about. Hmm. All right. So you've helped me. I may rephrase this question to you and to others in the future. Then what is the highest purpose of a business, which would be the mm. same as the deepest purpose, I guess. But mm. being the higher purpose podcast, I love that. I want to unpack your journey, but not yet. I want to go into these other two questions because I think these three questions, your journey is interrelated and interwoven mm. in all of these. So the second question in you listening, we warned you up front, and Jonathan just alluded to it. You're going to hear some things here that might just change your understanding of leadership and what a leader is. So that's the second question. What is it that is widely, in your perspective, your opinion, what is widely misunderstood about what it means to lead a team of people and the value that a leader has to make, their contribution? The thing that we've seen, and we've seen this in organizations, whether Fortune 100 or tiny little companies that no one's ever heard of or something in between, there's this weird thing that we do when we lead, which is we internalize an idea that's incredibly destructive, and we've been holding onto it for a really long time, but we don't know that we're holding onto it, which is that we think that our role, we think that our value, we think that who we are supposed to be is the person who has the answers and mm. who can solve the problem in front of us. And that conditioning is so deeply interwoven with the way most of us were raised as children, the schools that we went to, the first bosses we had, the parents we had. We are so deeply conditioned to attach our sense of value, our sense of self, to having the answers and solving the problems. Mm. And then we take that into the workplace and it causes all kinds of problems. Mm. So the thing that's misunderstood is that when it comes to the people part of your organization and the people part of leadership, which is the hard part, that's not your job. Mm. Your job is not to have the answers and solve the problems. Your job is to ask good questions. In particular, your job is to ask questions that you don't know the answer to. 
Your job is to ask questions that will have answers that you didn't think of. Mm-hmm. And that shift, for some people that may sound deeply controversial, for some people it may sound mildly controversial, but what I can tell you having worked with such a wide variety of people over these years, it's a difficult shift. And it's a difficult shift because it cuts so deeply to so much of the conditioning that makes us who we think we are. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So we're coming back to that one in a moment. But the third question, what is something that leaders could do that might be even more effective than conducting meetings and presentations? (laughs) Uh, So many things. The thing that they could do is actually listen and absorb the feedback, the enormous amount of feedback that they're already getting. Mm. There is so much information, there's so much data at our fingertips within earshot. We can see it. We can see it in people's faces and their facial expressions and the way they conduct themselves and the way they walk down the hall, if there's a hall. And we do so much pushing, so much dispensing of information, so much unilateral, even though we don't think we are, And there's so little active listening happening in most organizations where we really open up, not just to let them finish so that we can tell them what we're going to do anyway, but to truly listen and internalize the hopes, needs, wants, fears, insecurities, good ideas, innovations, moments of bravery, moments of confusion, to internalize those things. Hmm. That's what leaders need to do so much more of. Okay, so Jonathan, I'm going to read a sentence from your book. I wasn't planning to do this, but I've got your book right here. It was this sentence, and it's on page 14 of the preface, folks. It was reading this sentence when I'm like, oh my gosh, you may remember this. I messaged you early. It was a Saturday morning. I'm reading your book. I've had the book for a few months, but I finally sat down to read it, and I'm in the preface, folks, and I read this sentence, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to have one of these with Jonathan, a conversation. I decided to do whatever I could to create a great place to work one conversation at a time. Yes. So when I read that, I mean, rather than having meetings and presentations, have a conversation and listen. Yeah. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That does spin and turn upside down what we've understood leadership. In this whole idea of not having, I mean, I love what you just said, being willing to ask a question that you don't know the answer to. So let's talk about your journey because you didn't grow up leading this way. I mean, you just talked about the journey. You finally discovered, hey, I want to become the leader. The people I'm leading are waiting for me to become. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that journey, Jonathan. I just... To whatever degree you want to talk about, I just want to unpack that story because yeah, there are gems and jewels in your story of mm. how you got here. What I would say if I would self-describe the group of friends I had in high school and growing up and for sure my parents and others, I was an arrogant son of a, you know, I, I was not a <laughs> humble servant for the first, I don't know, 38 years of my life. That's not who I was. I was a smart ass. Mm. And I'm a smart guy. I was resourceful. I knew how to make my way around. I, I knew how to get things done. And, but I was not a good listener. If you had asked me, hey, Jonathan, are you a good listener? I probably would have said yes, because I was really arrogant and I said I was good at everything. <laughs> but I was not a good listener. And I would use 
my positions of authority, whether they were, sometimes I was in a CEO position, most of the time I wasn't, but I would use the positions of authority that I had to try to get my way Mm. uh, because I believed that my way was the right way. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to have a conversation that went two ways. And to me, a conversation that goes two ways is defined by, can I be changed by this conversation? Am I willing to be changed by what happens in this moment with this other human being? Because if I'm not, it's not a conversation. Right. And I didn't know how to do that. Wait a minute, say that again. I heard that, but I'm like, oh my gosh. So you just said, if you and I are in a dialogue and I'm not willing to receive information and possibly even change my mind, it's not really a conversation. That's right. What is it then? It's an announcement or a, it's a meeting. It's a company meeting between two individuals, right? It's not open, yeah. right? There's no porosity to it. It's not dialogue, right? We're not making each other better, smarter, more humble, more transparent. We're not serving one another if it's just my, here's what I want to tell you. Mm. And I nod my head and I say, oh yeah, really interesting, Kevin, but I'm not really listening. And I'm really just trying to lead you to the foreordained conclusion I've developed for you. And I want to manipulate you so you think it was your idea. Exactly. Okay. (laughs) So when did this dawn upon you? I mean, I'm curious here, is this epiphany or was this a gradual awakening? I think like a lot of things in life, it was like 90% gradual and then a 10% pushed off the cliff moment. So I had spent the better part of 10 or 12 years really bouncing around in my career. I had various business gigs, some startups, some more established companies, junior and senior roles. But I was bouncing between my business personality, so to say, and my personal and spiritual growth journey. And I was going back and forth between those two and sort of business guy by day, personal growth and spiritual seeker by night and on the weekends. And I had really had no idea how unhappy I was doing Mm -hmm. that until it all came crashing down. I was in a CEO position at the time. And anyone who's ever been in a CEO or senior leadership position knows there's no better way to have yourself handed to you and have that mirror reflection. And I can't point to any single moment, but it was an accumulation of moments where I had stopped showing up to my life in the ways that I wanted to. And little compromises led to big compromises and small decisions led to benign neglect of the things that mattered to me in my family and my marriage and my being a father and my friendships. And, And at some point, you know, the business I was running was fine. It was okay. It wasn't like the business was in dire straits but I just couldn't do it anymore. I just hit a wall. And I remember I was this big, beautiful house where we were living. And in one way, I thought I was on top of the world. And I remember just, frankly, just sitting there in my underwear on the beautiful wood floors, just crying. Wow. And just feeling like, this is not my life. This is not who I want to be. This is not how I want to be. And that was the moment for me where I was like, this is not working. Whatever it is that I learned about how to lead, how to be professional, how to show up in the world, there's got to be another way. And I didn't know what it was, but that was the moment for me. That was the mm. dark night of the soul for me. It was like, I don't know what it is. I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know what I'm going to do next, mm. but this ain't it. Okay. So a comment, then a question. The comment is, this is exactly how Hemingway, in one of his books, Dialogue Between Two Characters Sitting at a Bar, described bankruptcy. He said, mm. so how did you go bankrupt? He said, well, gradually and then suddenly. Yes, that's right. That's right. 
Gradually right? and then suddenly. Yeah. Gradually and then suddenly. So then what happened? You're sitting there on the floor. Yeah. Crying. Then what happened, Jonathan? So I probably didn't stay down there for very long, but I said, look, the most important thing that I need to work on first is my marriage. Hmm. I need to work on my relationship with my beloved wife. This was the love of my life. And I had searched long and wide to find her and to be found. And I decided that was going to be my first priority. So I shifted some things around. I stepped down as a CEO of the company I was running at that time. I was still employed there. I had a bunch of other stuff that was still on my plate. But I said, look, I don't want to be in that CEO role right now. It's not good for me. I can still have the influence that I want to have in another way. And I said, look, I'm going to... Again, this was also sort of a gradually then suddenly phenomenon. But I said, like, I'm going to go small. I'm going to focus one week at a time, one day at a time, and then ultimately one conversation at a time. And I'm going to stop driving for results. Mm-hmm. I spend my whole life driving for results. What would it look like if I wasn't doing that? Mm-hmm. What if I was mindful of the results that I wanted, but I wasn't driving towards them? And I started to anchor myself in one-to-one conversations. And I made the decision. It actually came in a pivot moment. That was the gradually. And then the suddenly was my wife asking me a question that changed my life. Hmm. She said, sweetie, you've been doing personal growth for so long. You've been doing professional growth for so long. What if those are not two journeys, but they're one? Wow. What if that's why you're suffering is that you're trying to do two things and it's actually one thing. That was the moment that things changed for me. Wow. And that epiphany or revelation or insight, whatever word you care to characterize that with, you, Jonathan, you listening, that seemed to change everything for you. And even that's kind of like the key insight Yes. that you now carry forward in your work. What if professional growth and personal growth aren't two separate things? Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? What does that mean for us individually? What does that mean for our teams? What does that mean for our organization? What does that mean for our world? What does that mean for the future of work? Mm. It's a big open question with a lot of potential ramifications, but start locally, right? Like, what does that mean for me? What if that is the vehicle and it's just growth? Mm. And I show up differently. I'm not exactly the same I don't do the same things. I don't say the same things when I'm in the office with my team that I do when I'm at home with my two and a half year old, right? I show up differently in different contexts in my life, but I'm just me. Okay. I'm curious. When was that? Do you remember how long ago was that? Yeah, that was in 2014. Okay. So five years. Yep. And I would suggest or posit that you don't have that question fully answered yet. I don't think we'll ever fully answer that. But in this journey, where has that taken you in this quest of just, well, what if they aren't? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think for me, I spend a lot of time and energy looking for reflection through outside sources, right? So looking for whether it was through coaches or counselors or it didn't matter, meditation teachers, yoga teachers, emotional work, other kinds of mentors there were so many different formats where I was trying to work on myself. And the, the format where I wasn't really working on myself was at work. Mm. I wasn't seeing the people in my life, my colleagues, as my mentors, my colleagues as my coaches, my colleagues as the people who saw me more closely than just about anybody else in my life, with the exception of my wife and maybe a couple other people, 
they saw me day to day from eight in the morning till whatever. They saw how I showed up. They saw the choices that I was making big and small. And I had this opportunity in front of me, like that was my mirror. And I had never related with it in that way before where Mm. I saw, hey, you know, I'm doing personal growth all day long. Mm. I'm doing personal growth while I'm in Slack. I'm doing personal growth while I'm having a tough negotiation with a client right now where we're talking with their procurement department who's trying to renegotiate. I'm doing personal growth in that conversation. You know, what are my values? How do I want to show up in the world? What are my bottom lines? What am I willing to walk away from? Those types of things. And I'm actively doing that Mm. all the time. Mm. Okay, so I want to invite you now to define for us good authority and then the three core principles, because we're talking about one of those core principles. But what does good authority mean? So the way I'll define it is by talking about what it's not. Okay. But that's how I'll start. So the old version of authority was command and control. Most of us grew up with some form or multiple forms of command and control, top down, authority knows best, authority is right. We could talk a long time about where we got those ideas, but that's the historical narrative around authority. In about 20 years ago, something like that, maybe it started in the 60s and 70s, people started to raise their hand and say, eh, I don't like that so much. And different pockets started to get louder. And people said, hey, that version of authority doesn't work for me. Hmm. And what happened in the 90s and the 2000s, and again, it happens in pockets, and then it gets wider appeal. People said like, well, what if we didn't have authority? What if we were all on the same team and ideas emerged around holacracy? And what if we were all equal, which I would call no authority, right? No hierarchy. And some ideas emerged on the fringe, but some ideas started to gain some traction. Well, what if we had no authority? We did that for a while. And people said, well, wait a second. Well, that doesn't work either. Because the reality is there is hierarchy. And if you don't name it, if it isn't explicit, it goes under the table. And then it becomes all kinds of... It doesn't go away just because you say we're all on the same team and we're all family here. Like it doesn't go away. And so to me, the good authority was how do we strike the balance? How do we acknowledge that we do need hierarchy. We do need structure. People have different levels of experience and knowledge and ability to lead and vision an organization and to operationalize things. We need some hierarchy. That's a valuable addition to our world. We can't throw it out entirely. And we don't need it in a command and control way. We can hold it with a light touch. Mm. We can hold it humanely. We can hold it in a two-way dialogue. We can hold it respectfully. So that's what good authority is. Good authority is How do I embrace, acknowledge, and lean into the fact that I am in an authority position, whether I'm a first-time manager or the CEO or whatever, that's real, and I only need to use it the absolute minimum amount that I need to use it. Mm. Okay, love the answers, love that definition, and have watched that journey, and have traveled that journey myself, right? Because a lot of us say, okay, gosh, we've seen abuses of authority. So now let's try it without authority and that doesn't work either. Okay. So then you have these three core principles, which I think we've already talked about all of them, but let's call them out again, back in the context of this. So the first core principle. The first core principle is that the deepest purpose of a business is to change the lives of the people who work there. Okay. So let me just ask a question. When you now are in some of those same circles that you were in years ago, Mm-hmm. Having conversations with some of those people who are profit-only people, perhaps, is the purposes of, of a business. Oh, how do people respond to you when you 
articulate that the deepest purpose of a business is to change the lives of the people who work there. It's interesting. You know, one of the people that I talked with recently, you may know, I don't know if you know Michael Port. Yeah. You know, Michael Port. So he's a very accomplished author and speaker. And we became acquainted and he picked up a copy of the book. And he said, Jonathan, you know, when I first read that, I thought, no, that's ridiculous. I don't agree. That's wrong. Who is this guy? I've read 10,000 leadership books and I've never read that before. So it must be wrong. Yeah, so it must be, and he said, it really bothered me at first. And he said, but I liked you and I liked our conversation that we had. And so I said, like, I want to think about that. I want to think about that. And he said, and then the light bulb went off for me and he said, you know what? I think he's right. I think that's what we've been missing. Mm. I think that's what I really want. I'm paraphrasing. I don't, I'm not attributing word for word what Michael said, but that was the gist of it is he said, it's something clicked for me. And I thought, you know, that's actually what we're trying to do here in our business. But that's what Michael Port does. He changes the lives of the people he works with and the people in his program. So that's right. It's a foreign concept for him. Exactly. But it's controversial in the way that it's framed. Yeah. So my answer, my longer answer to the question is when I've sat down with CEOs in very traditional industries and people you wouldn't think of, who I won't name by name, when I sit down with them and they say, I want to talk about that idea. There's something to that. Can you tell me more about it? It leads to really rich conversations. And then you can have a, hey, it's not about that deepest purpose to the exclusion of other purposes. It's about an orientation. It's about what do we do when we wake up in the morning? What's the place from which we lead? Knowing that all these other things are important too. And those tend to be really rich conversations Mm -hmm. and organizational changing ones. Have you had conversations like this? This just popped into my mind. But how does that cause people to think differently about the profit conversation in their organization when they are looking at it through the lens of changing lives of people. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting assay of people or maybe array of people is that, of course, there's not two kinds of people in the world, but there often to be two types of conversations. There are the people that are the choir. They're like, I get it. That's what I want. That's the company that I want to build. That's everything. Thank you. You're speaking my language. Let's do this. That's one group. The other group are saying like, hey, mm, I don't know, how, I don't know, but like, talk to me about the business. Talk to me about the profit. Talk to me about the implications. How do we operationalize that? And I love both of those groups. The second group is actually easier because that leads to a lot of really interesting conversations about, well, talk to me about the business now. Hmm. Talk to me about profitability now. Talk to me about attrition now. Talk to me about the quality of decision-making in the organization now. Talk to me about the quality of accountability in the organization now. With profit as your primary motive, how are you doing on all those criteria? Uh, not so good. Okay, great. So I get it. I know that you care a lot about profitability. So do I. But when you lead with profit, when you lead with money, here's how you're doing on these secondary measurements. How do you feel about that? I don't like that. Well, I don't want, I want those numbers to move. Okay, great. So the way that you've been trying to get those numbers to move has been what? Pushing the profit, pushing the money, pushing the numbers. And it's not working. People are getting burned out. They're leaving. Efficiencies are lower. Projects take longer. Clients report less optimal experiences. So what's a good strategy? Should we keep doing that? Or should we try something else? And these are really smart people, men and women. They go, ah, I see your point. Let's look at this a little differently. And so what I found, generally speaking, is that leaders are really good at numbers and really bad at math. And (laughs) until you press them on it, they don't actually tally up all of the costs 
to the organization when you lead by the numbers and you drive by the numbers. And it's really, again, it's a matter of sequence. Nobody's throwing away the numbers. The business has got to make money and it's got to hit its goals and satisfy its stakeholders, whoever those stakeholders may be. Okay, so that's the first core principle. We've already talked about the second core principle, but I'll let you restate it and elaborate. So the second one is that the role of leaders and managers is to show people that personal and professional growth are inseparable. And I can just say briefly, like if you're listening to this, you probably already know this, but these are the new rules. This is how you must show up as an organization. The new agreement with employees, we're at effectively 0% unemployment here in North America. And that's where most of our clients are, although we do some work globally. And people have options. They can go somewhere else. They don't like the way they're being treated. And their question, if you strip away the things that people are afraid to say at work, what they really want to say is, hey, I don't know how long I'm going to work here, but from the day I start to the day I leave, your job is to make me a better version of myself. Hmm do that, I'm going to stick around. And if you don't do that, I'm leaving. Or I'm going to stay and I'm going to disengage, which is worse. So that's the second principle. You have to train. And it's a training gap. It's a skills gap. It's often not a willingness gap. Leaders and managers want to coach, help people grow. They just don't have the skills. No one's ever showed them how to do it because our world is based on individual contributions and as the thing that's rewarded. So a lot of training and development is needed there. Obviously, that's at the core of what we do. But that's what the second principle is about. I love that. And then the third principle? The third principle, one of the things that I have said and many leaders have said that really started to bother me was how do I get people to be more engaged, right? How do I get them to stretch? How do I get them to go beyond the basics of what's in the job? And it's the wrong question. So the third principle is if you want people to be more engaged, you got to be more engaged with them. And the modality of sort of waiting around and hoping for people to get more engaged and telling, giving, making announcements or edicts or culture change initiatives or anything like that and expecting that to work, it's not going to happen. It's going to happen one conversation at a time by leaders and managers engaging with people and asking questions and listening to their responses and then taking actions based on what you've heard. That's how it happens. So you believe, let me... Be careful how I phrase this. Most of the discussions we're having about employee engagement are fruitless. And what we should be having are conversations instead, not about employee engagement, but with employees, engaging with them. Yes. And teaching managers and leaders how to do that. Because especially these days, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but especially these days, we're in our computers. We are in these digital tools all day long. And depending upon how old you are, your level of conditioning with this is more or less. But we have some serious gaps in our ability to talk to one another as human beings. And even people now, and nowadays, you know, I'm 46. When I was 36 and I wanted to talk to somebody about something, I picked up the phone and I called them. Now I send them a text, right? We, our world, we've engineered or we've let ourselves be engineered out of conversations mm-hmm. to a great degree. And it's not that we don't do it. Of course we do. But in the workplace, we're in digital tools all day long. But I don't want to be managed by digital tools. I want to be managed by a human being who's invested in my growth, who cares about me, who's going to ask me questions, who's going to listen to the responses, and who's going to do something about it with the power and the authority that they have. So is there a transformation you'd like to share that you've observed in an organization or a company or a team that really embraced good authority and saw dramatic difference as a result? 
There are a couple of them. I'll start with one is a, is a company about 1,700 employees had done a lot of growing. And we went through a whole process at the beginning where there was a sort of a split on the executive team. You had some people who were like, hey, we got to do this. We have to change the way we treat people. We got to level up our skills in leadership and management. And then the other half of the leadership team that was just pushing on numbers and just saying, nope, we got to drive metrics. We got to drive billables, drive the numbers, drive the metrics. We just have to push forward. There was a real split inside the organization. And so we did some work with the executive team and leadership team, including one of the most hardline sort of anti-voices. One of the people was like, all this leadership stuff and the culture stuff, I don't know if I buy it. I don't know that it's really going to help. And at some point, this gentleman got up at an all-company meeting after having gone through some of this work and said, I've had a change of heart. Mm. I see the world differently now than I did 90 days ago. And I want to share with you a little bit about that. And uh, we had coached him through it because he was nervous because he was known as the numbers guy. He was the known as this other guy. And he said, look, it's not that I don't care about the numbers. Of course I do. But we've been going about it the wrong way. Mm. We've been going about it. We say people first, but we haven't been doing people first. And I'm starting a different track. And that cascaded through the organization, as you can imagine, when somebody who's a major cultural influencer like that not only says he's going to change, but actually changes people start to take their cues differently. So we get to witness a lot of stories like that where nobody's giving up their strength. It's about understanding what moves people, what motivates people, and learning how to communicate in a way that's transparent. Okay, you introduced a word right then that I was wanting to ask you about, Jonathan. These words that get co-opted and used everywhere that may not really mean a lot. Yes. And through ReFound, you seek to animate those in real life action. And people first is one that comes to mind. Yes. Talk about people first when it's really BS and Mm -hmm. just Madison Avenue marketing versus people first when it's really people first here. What's the difference? So I'm with you. I mean, the people first, there are very few companies that haven't grabbed onto that in their internal marketing, recruiting marketing in some form or another, right? Like we're people first. Our greatest asset is our people. Like, uh, yeah, yawn. So that's the claim, right? We're the world's greatest number one ever. That's the claim. And the question is, what's the reality? What is it like at 1032 on a Thursday morning when I go into a meeting with my manager, do I have a voice? Hmm. Am I seen? Am I heard? Am I valued for my individual contribution? Do I get to have an impact? And those dynamics, you can't measure without talking to people. You can't measure with a survey or an algorithm. Mm. You can get some insight. You can get some generic insight, but you're not going to really learn unless you go and talk with people. And I had a friend of mine who was a coach, not part of ReFound, but he said something to me, this was probably 15 years ago, which I loved. He said, if you want to really learn about a company, talk to the night watchman, right? (laughs) Because that guy or that woman knows way more about the culture than anyone else is going to reveal to you. They know what people really think and what people are really saying. And so you got to go talk to people. You can't listen to the marketing. We live in an increasingly transparent world. If people think it's transparent now, wait till it's transparent five years from now. And you can see individual ratings on the manager that you're going to go work for and Yelp reviews on Glassdoor is like transparency 1.0. The world is becoming radically transparent in that way. And so to me, it comes down to back to that. How am I treated? What's the measure of a culture? Well, what do people talk about when they go home and they have dinner with their family? The way they talk about work, that's the culture. Yeah. Yeah. That's whether it's people first or not. 
Okay, so coming back to this very, what we talked about in the beginning, this very different understanding of what it means to be a leader. Later in the book, you kind of bring an analogy that brings this front and center. Mm. More Yoda, less Superman. Mm. Unpack that for me a little. I love that chapter, Jonathan. When I read that, it's just vivid and it's visual. Mm. I'm not a marketer by trade, but every once in a while, we land on something really good. And More Yoda, Less Superman was one of them. And I was trying to capture what is that shift from me and my individual contributions and moving things forward and saving the day? What character represents that? And for me, that was Superman. There are other superheroes you could put in there. And then what's the shift? Well, if it's not Superman, when it comes to people leadership, who's a character that best exemplifies that mentor, that coach that we want to have in our life. And for me, that was Yoda. I probably saw it 14 times in the movie theater with my brother in 1978 or whenever that was. (laughs) And there are other characters that could do the job for that split. But for me, and this is an idea that has resonated with, with really all of our clients, is this idea that it's not no Superman. It doesn't say all Yoda, no Superman. It says more Yoda, less Superman. That's what people want. They want, sometimes you do have to have the answer. Sometimes you do have to jump in and fix something, but it's way less frequently than we think. And so what Yoda did, which Superman didn't, for people who aren't very familiar with those two characters, I know most people are, but many aren't, Superman would be the one to spin the world backwards if he had to fix every problem, have every answer single-handedly, exactly, with a leaping bound, right? And he never coached anybody. He never went to Lois Lane and said, hey, you know, talk to me about your decision-making process there. Why did you decide to go into that building down the dark alley with no backup when it was raining and dark and scary looking? He doesn't do that because his whole identity is wrapped up in, in saving the day. And of course, Superman is a male archetype. You know, we work with plenty of women who do the same thing. It's really a universal one. It's conditioned into us as in the workplace. And you contrast that with Yoda. What did Yoda do? What did Yoda do in those formative moments with Luke? He asked him questions. Mm. He was vague. He was not a direct communicator. He didn't give Luke direct feedback. That wasn't what he did at all. He took Luke on a journey of self-discovery. And he pushed Luke to challenge himself to answer questions that were difficult and to confront internal obstacles and to self-reflect and to self-doubt. And Yoda had the confidence enough to go, you know what? This is his journey, not mine. He's the one who's going to have to do these things that are difficult, not me. So I better prepare him for that. And if I hold his hand at every step, I'm not being a good mentor or coach. So that's the distinction that we're in most cultures we work with, again, particularly in North America, I would say most cultures that we work with, people are too nice. We're not giving constructive feedback. We're not creating space for growth. We're way too much over-indexed on wanting to be liked and saying things like, hey, we're people first and you can be your true self here or whatever. And then right under the surface is all the gossip and the politics and the, you know, and the infighting and all of that. So that's those two characters, more Yoda, less Superman. So what will be different about the world of work when we have more Yoda and less Superman? What will be different, what's increasingly different is people thinking differently about what am I getting from work? I want self-development. I want professional development. Many people will say, I want self-actualization. I see work, millennials in particular will, will say this, older generations will as well. I see my work as a pathway of self-discovery. And the future of work with Moriotas is giving it to them, is honoring that agreement. And, and maybe close by saying, we were in a workshop, this was a very large company, global company, 
And we were introducing this idea of more Yoda, less Superman. And one of the senior leaders got up and he said, look, you know, I've been thinking about, I've been sitting here all day. He was kind of the quiet type absorbing. I've been sitting here all day and I realized why this is so important. Because when I was here 20 years ago, people had pensions. We had company loyalty. We did a lot of stuff for people that we don't do anymore. And I understand why. And I understand the way that we've set up our organization. We're a lot leaner, even though we're a huge company. And we don't make those long-term commitments to people that we used to make, whether the obvious ones and the not obvious ones. And what I think about when I think about more utilize Superman, these are his words, is this is what we can do instead. Because we're not going back to those days where the big mother corporation takes care of everything for you. Those days are gone. But this is something that we can do for people that is deeply meaningful. We can coach, we can mentor, we can help people grow. So whether they stay with us for six months or they stay with us for 60 years, that's an agreement we can keep. Mm -hmm. That's the future of work. Wow. That is a great place to wrap this up. Thank you, Jonathan. So for people wanting to connect with you, learn more about Good Authority, your work at ReFound, where do we direct them? Best place to go. It's one of the only places to go, but the best place to go is refound.com, R-E-F, like Frank, O-U-N-D.com. Or you can send a note to hello at refound.com and someone on the team will pick it up and it'll make it to the right place, wherever that place is. You can find the book on Amazon. And I've heard that a lot of folks in this industry don't read their own books, but I had to audition for the part, but I did read my own book. So you can pick up the audiobook on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever, and you can listen to the audiobook. That's really the best place to start. So the book, Good Authority on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you buy books, your local bookstore, and or come to refound.com and we've got some free tools and resources you can check out there. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure to have you join us today. Likewise, enjoy the conversation. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and heard something that's making you think. I'm reminded of something a friend said about this podcast. It makes him think. And these ideas stick with him and roll around in his mind for some time after the conversations. Well, let me share a few things that stood out to me. You know I was smiling when Jonathan Raymond said, the deepest purpose of a business is to change the lives of the people who work there. And then I love that. I mean, that's just spot on high five, Jonathan. Then I love this idea that personal and professional growth aren't two different things. They are one pursuit. And then the best way to get people to be more engaged is to engage with them. And the best way to engage with them is by connecting with them in conversation. Hear their story. Share yours. You know, the world of work has changed. It is changing but not everywhere has caught up yet. And I love the way Jonathan explained this, that there is a new agreement or a new ethos in the workplace. And I love the way he put it. Make me a better version of me and I'll stick around. Stop doing that and I'm out of here. That's the challenge you and I have. It's the opportunity to rise up and to become the leader your team is waiting for. So I want to challenge you to engage in conversation with people you lead today or to invite your leader into a conversation. And I'd love to hear what's rolling around in your mind. You can call me 678-744-5111 or email me 
Kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com. Hey, until we connect again, I invite and encourage you to live, love, and lead with purpose. Do you have a high stakes initiative that is stuck, stalled out, or stymied, and you're not sure what to do now and how to forge a path forward? The situation is not as grim as you think it is. We can help. Contact Kevin to explore how a winning conversation may be exactly what you need to break the gridlock, unite your team in purpose, and accelerate traction. Call 678-744-5111 or email kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com.